Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 59th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that just can't wait to buy your Modern Masters 2017 singles during the incoming desperate sell-off. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of magic gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. Quick message from our sponsor, Face-to-Face Games. Face-to-FaceGames.com provides competitive pricing on magic singles and sealed product with shipping to both the U.S. and Canada. Check out Face-to-Face card pricing via MTGPrice.com, whether building your deck or stockpiling a spec. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on the interwebs. My co-host is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good afternoon, everybody. Good evening, I should say. Glad to be here and looking forward to sharing all sorts of great information with you guys this week. Our show is sponsored by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today, MTGPrice.com, to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. Travis, what's on the agenda this week? Well, James, this week we have a show in four parts. Segment one is our top movers. This is where we'll talk about the cards that have seen the largest price increases within the last week. Segment two is our cards to watch, where we will look at cards that uh, have a positive price outlook. Segment three is our metagame we can review. We'll be looking at uh, a GP, rather boring GP Barcelona, as well as the Star City Modern Open from this past weekend. And finally, segment four, topic of the week, we're going to look at the TCG Pro Trader, uh, no relation, that was just announced uh, this past weekend, really week. Um, So let's hop right in uh, at the bottom of segment one, top movers. Our first card of the week is Traverse the Ulvenwald Foils from, uh, what is that? It's not the dark. That's uh, Eldritch Moon? Uh, Shadows of Shadows? Rittenstrad. Shadows of Rittenstrad. Uh Started the week at 12, ended the week at 20 uh, for a good little 66% gain. I believe this has to do with the fact that we're starting to see it show up in some of the modern builds um, with uh, Death Shadow particularly. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, the Death Shadow Jun decks have been running this card, and I think what people are coming to realize is that in a world where you're you're running Mishra's Bobbles and um, Tar Fires so that you can get multiple card types in the graveyard for Tarmogoyf, um, you might also be interested in searching up the creature that you want for a single green mana. Yeah, for sure. The, the Delirium plays very well with Death Shadow decks. Yeah, and if you're looking for moderate, potential modern staples, folks, it, you can't do much better than one cast and cost green cards. Yeah, that tutor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what is next for us? So next on our list, we have Tyrant's Familiar from Commander 2014, moving from $2 to $4.25 for $2.25 uh, gain, or about 112%. Uh, I'm assuming that this is predicated on the fact that Commander 2014 product is far enough behind us that inventory has dropped exceedingly low. I would expect as much as well. The inventory on this is pretty dry at this point. Uh, there are only very, uh, like a handful of near-mint copies on TCG Player. Right. What's next on the list? Next is uh, City of Shadows, a returning favorite from last week. Uh, I think last week we talked about it jumping from like a dollar to nine or something or to 13. And now we're at 13 to 35 for another 
pretty large increase in price. This one uh, seems to be reasonably sticky, too. I'm hearing stories of people actually selling this card at $20 on eBay. So even if that 35 is optimistic, people are getting 20 bucks for it. Uh, kind of surprising since the card is atrocious, but, but I guess this is one of those reserve list buyouts that actually worked. Yeah, one of my favorite uh, bastions of cards that are never price updated um, fulfilled a pretty sweet cart that I ordered this week that included an SP copy of that for $4.75 and a bunch of Street Wraiths at $2.50 uh, and then Ancient Stirrings at about $3.50. Um, so that was a nice little cart. Um, I'm still stunned that anybody plays this card. People told me on Twitter after we posted the podcast last week that it can be run in Atraxa, but I just feel like uh, even in Atraxa, it doesn't present a very compelling option. No, it's, I mean, I guess I can see it slotting in as, uh, you know, the 35th land, but it still feels like you're stretching. But hey, what do we know? People are paying for it. So that's such as their prerogative. Uh, what do we got next? Yeah, it's not up to us. It's up to the market to dictate the price. So <laughs> by all means, City of Shadows, go straight to the sky. Uh, next on the list, we had Future Sight and MMA copies of Street Wraith. Um, this is the perennial favorite of decks that want to play 56-card magic um, by cycling this into the graveyard. And now that you really want to have about uh, you know a 6 to 10 life with your Death Shadow in play, um, being able to give up life in exchange for card draw and shrink your deck to achieve consistency is that much more important. Um, and until that deck gets banned, and I suspect that is a possibility in the next year or so, um, Street Wraith uh, is going to pop. Uh, it's just not that much of this card uh, on the market, despite the reprinting in MMA, which was, of course, a much lower print run than Modern Masters 2015 or 17. Right. Uh, yeah, this is, shows up. Time and time again, we see it not only in Living End, um, I'm sorry, not only in uh, Death's uh, Shadow. Shadow, but we also see it in Living End, uh, which I think is an additional, you know, additional vector of demand here. So probably not the most important thing right now, but definitely kind of adds to that. Yeah, it gives it a bit of a, a tangential backup plan on the modern scene. Um, and I guess I didn't finish saying where this actually got to. Um, the future site copies moved from three dollars to nine, so uh, about two hundred percent plus gain, or about five or six dollars. Um, and I think that's a, any if you can get anywhere near ten dollars for street wraiths that you've got lying around in your old uh, binders or bulk boxes, by all means, move out and and get into something more exciting. Yeah, I'd be surprised if anyone had a stash of these anywhere at this point, but. Uh... Yeah, congratulations if you did. Yeah, foil, foils moved to 40 bucks. so... Um, yeah. Whew. Check your binders for those two folks. That's another one that I have to imagine people probably had trouble owning a lot of at this point in time. You would have sold them already. Um, last up, we have Yawgmoth's Bargain. Uh, this time, the foils. I believe last week we discussed the non-foils. Um, started the week at 22 up to around 100, uh, showing a pretty large increase, although uh, those foils were not seeing any movement at that price yet. So we don't actually know how much this is going to end up costing real realistically. Uh, but given that it is a reserveless foil and uh, exceedingly powerful, um, there's no reason to think that it could not end uh, at least north of uh, $40. Um, but does anyone guess at this point? So uh, not too surprising given that the non-foils were on the move last week. Yeah, I had a foil I was running in my Aloro deck a while back um, that I ended up selling. 
uh, because I just couldn't <laughs> couldn't justify having it sit around like that. Uh, but I'm if you've ever played with the card, you know it's as ridiculous as Necropotence ever was, especially in EDH where six mana is no big deal. Um, and yeah, uh, anything on the reserve list, relatively safe if it's actually playable in EDH that the foils are going to go sky high at some point. Yep. Uh, all right. Well, that about does it for segment one. Uh, let's jump into segment two. James, you want to start us off with your first pick? <laughs> yeah, I have a contrarian pick uh, first on my list this week. Um, this is predicated on the fact that I think Felidar Guardian is going to get the boot uh, in advance of the Pro Tour. Uh, makes sense to me that they didn't want to have back-to-back bannings, even though they've left room for them now. Um, hence the you know no action on the bot ban list this week. But uh, Standard's looking very stale. Um, by all accounts, the play is actually quite good, but because the there's, the format seems very, very solved uh, in a tight triangulation around three decks, and that triangulation is largely hinging on the fact that the Sahili Rai deck forces decks to have interaction that's relevant um, or give up a lot of percentage points, um, I suspect Guardian's going the way of the Dinosaur in Standard sooner rather than later, and at that point, Sahili Rai should probably drop from, say, $10 to $5, at which point I'm going to grab a bunch, because I think Sahili Rai is being underestimated um, for down the road in Modern and or EDH. Um, the ability to copy a creature or artifact and give it haste is just busted if you can protect the card. And there are already versions of the deck that are abusing things like Sun Titan, uh, infinite loops uh, that have been fielded by streamers. Um, we haven't uh, seen them show up in any kind of top eight uh, in a major event yet, but uh, I will not be at all surprised if some kind of Splinter Twin variant um, starts making waves somewhere down the road. And at that point, this Mythic cannot sit at $5. It will be back up over 10 uh, I remember the, the Sun Titan combo, but... Refresh my memory because it seems like Sihili doesn't kill herself on the minus two. So how do you get the loop going? You need, I think you need to either, you have need to have oh two Sahilis. Uh, I think it's yeah, I think it's two Sahilis and a Sun Titan or two Sun That's Titans and a, and a Sahili, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, I don't anyway, know how two Sun it, Titans and a Sahili would work. But there was, a, there was a deck that was posted on Star City Games this week that was using Kiki Jiki, a whole bunch of combo pieces, and Sahili, um, and, and was running four Felidar Guardian in the main. Um, who knows if that's tier two or tier one in modern, but a $5 mythic that's already been proven broken in standard, um, could easily have a future, uh, in a more powerful format. Oh, sure. I, I, I completely agree with you there. This is pretty interesting. Um, when the price gets that low, because, uh, you know, that's, that's an effect that wizard is traditionally pretty careful about tinkering with clearly, we already know this was a mistake, so it's not hard to believe that this could have some uh, unintended ramifications in modern as well, um, especially when there's a million combo pieces at hand. Uh, you know, if that strategy, you could just end up with so many that, um, you know, every two cards that you draw gives you gives you an infinite combo. Yeah, exactly. Um, my first pick for the week is uh, Caravac the Merciless. This was originally in Time Spiral. Um, it was also reprinted in Arch Enemy, which was 100 million years ago at this point. Copies are around about $2 right now, a little bit more than that. I think these can climb up to uh, up to probably 8 maybe even more. Supply on this is very odd. Uh, there are currently basically no near-mint Arch Enemy copies. There is a handful of Time Spiral near-mint copies. Channel uh, Star City has... 
um, just some SP copies. Channel Fireball sold out. Then ABU Games has 90. I don't, I don't understand why one vendor has wildly more in stock than anybody else, but even still, there aren't that many. And because it's only one vendor, they can change their price really quickly, um, to, to kind of move the price that move the, the bar up. Uh, so unless you buy all 50 at once, they might, you know, they might end up selling some of those for a lot more than $2, but supply is really low. This card's always been cool in EDH, but I think the printing of Vile Smasher has kind of like brought people's attention to it, giving them another reason to play it. Um, he's a cool commander. He's cool in the Vile Smasher deck. So uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think Karabek's got a good future ahead of him. Yeah, solid EDH profile. Uh, hasn't seen too many reprintings, and certainly not lately in anything uh, mainstream. Uh, and super low inventory is all I need to hear on an EDH card um, before trying to pick up some copies. Interestingly, we can't source these from Europe effectively because nobody has enough inventory over there to get a big enough order to make the shipping worthwhile. Um, so uh, that will certainly contribute to uh, the difficulty that vendors will have restocking the card. Mm-hmm uh what uh what do you got next so one of the other cards i've got my eye on um from kaladesh that i think is uh, likely to get lower before it gets higher and then stay high for a long time is uh, foils of panharmonicon um they're currently around ten dollars you could probably hang out and wait and see if you can get some summer sale deals at like six to eight or something like that um but the total inventory even on tcg for these foils is not particularly deep for a fall set uh foil rare uh, I'm seeing like 30 results, maybe 45, 50 copies total. And the price gets from 10 up into the $18 range pretty quick if you start moving down the list. Um, this card is going to be bonkers in a whole bunch of different decks in Commander over the years. Um, it's the kind of thing that is very, very safe to get in at, on at its lows because um, it's unlikely to see a reprint in foil. It's the kind of card I could easily see them reprinting in commander decks in three or four years. But again, they won't be foils, at least not under the current paradigm. Um, so, yeah, Panharmonicon foils. <laughs> I did not realize that you had put this on here earlier, but uh, I definitely called Panharmonicon foils at least once in the past. I possibly brought it up twice. <laughs> um, but it was a while ago now. It was It was probably a good 10 weeks, if not more. Uh, and it was also right around $10. Supply is still quite low. It can't, it hasn't really, hasn't like sold out yet, but it's not. Yeah, we're, we're seeing the price. It hasn't turned yet. Yeah, we're seeing the price action that, that, that suggests a slow bleed because people occasionally buy a copy for their deck. No one's tried to buy out yet. Um, that buy in, buy out would still be something in the neighborhood of, you know, 500 to $1,000 to achieve. Um, and you know, no one's pulled the trigger on that, but feel very confident that a $20 price tag on this is going to be a certainty down the road. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm right there with you. I completely agree. So hard to argue with it when I've said it in the past. All right. Uh, that, that's not to tease you. That's just more like <laughs> hard to argue with myself. Um, <laughs> okay. My last pick for the week is, um, Liliana, the last hope foils, uh, this card is, is still surprisingly overall, not just foil, still surprisingly pricey. It's about 30 bucks low, um, in order to pick up a copy at this point for a card that's seen very little play in standard, but it is developing a little bit of a modern profile. We're seeing it pop up in, um, the Death Shadows deck, sometimes, uh, as much or more than Liliana the Veil. And it's also showing up in just straight Jund modern decks, which is 
excuse me, why the the foil copies are interesting. Um, you can pick up a copy right now for around $55. I think eBay might have one at that price and like TCG is like 56. Uh, but you know, you get like three, four play sets in and you're at 90 plus dollars for the foils on this. Uh, and there's very low supply across most major vendors. Um, we're talking probably, I don't know, 25 total foil copies of this on the internet right now, uh, at least in Western, you know, North America. So, um, a little pricey to buy in, but there's no reason given, you know, Lillian of the Veil's price history of, you know, $300 for foils in the, uh, a while back that we couldn't see, you know, 90 to to $100 on Lily of, on of the Last Hope, uh, given sustained modern play. You know, she doesn't need to see as much play as Lillian of the Veil has in order to, in order to warrant a price tag pushing triple digits. So again, a high buy-in, but I do think that there's a, a pretty good payoff there, you know, if we're talking about 30 bucks a, a piece. Yeah, it's worth noting that Liliana the Veil, of course, is about to see her third foil printing in, in five or six years, um, whereas Liliana the Last Hope is unlikely to show up for at least a few years, um, and uh, was a s- summer set, a uh, small summer set, uh, foil mythic. Um, so that's uh, about as good as it gets for a modern card. And, they're, you know, the reason they're running two of The Last Hope and only one of Liliana, of course, is because you can... Um, for minus two, you can return a creature card from your graveyard to your hand, so you can get back a Death Shadow, which is pretty gross, given that Death Shadows tend to be five, five, six, six, seven, seven, eight, eight towards the mid to late game when you're trying to close things out. And uh, being able to get one back right away with little downside is uh, especially good. It can also be done to a Tarmogoyf. Um, and yeah, there's just not that many of these around. They're large. The foils are largely sold out over in Japan, which is usually a good indicator of being a little ahead of the tech curve. Um, not very many available in Europe at any kind of a good price. Um, so yeah, anything in the fifty to $60 range, I think, is likely to net you a $20 bill at this point. Yeah, boy, getting uh, those whatchamacallits back is pretty nasty. The uh, Death Shadows with her. Um, what's your last pick for the week, James? So this pick is actually a repeat as well. This is from five shows ago. I called Carrie Zev's Expertise Foils at $3. And they're now at $5. When they were at 3 I said they could hit 10 Now that I've seen more of the uh, breaking, and, breaking and entering decks in Modern and how Carrie Zev's can leverage uh, Forbidden Orchard to give the opponent a creature to steal so that you can have a target um, against the creatureless decks, um, I feel more confident that the lowest casting cost of the cast a spell for free cards is almost certain to hit $15 as a foil. Um, inventory is not particularly deep, and even if the various versions of the split cards don't end up making uh, a major splash, um, I suspect that something else will down the road. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's hard to see how, it's hard to imagine this won't somehow break those uh those expertises at some or won't somehow break the free spells at some point or something along those lines. Yeah. I mean, at this point, I think we're just a top eight away from seeing this card pop over $10 in, in the same way that um, the deck that we're going to talk about from our metagame week and review segment in a few minutes um, definitely was part of the push for traverse the Ilvenwald foils to pop to 20. Okay. Uh, so speaking of which, why don't we get into that? Uh, what are, uh, what are you looking at here, James? Well, I guess the we should first just wipe off the board the, the extremely boring Grand Prix Barcelona, the standard tournament with 1,200 players that took place overseas this past weekend, where Wizards is facing you know the worst kind of outcome, um, given all of the chatter lately about how boring standard is to watch and analyze. Um, 
the we had four copycat decks and four four Mardu aggro decks, um, and that is not what most of us want to be watching. I don't think. Uh, no, it's certainly not what I want to be watching. And I mean, there's there's not even anything to say here that we like didn't talk about last week. It's just there's nothing nothing here that we as financial people need to care about. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, you would think that a format that's that's super solved um, would lead to spikes that we would be happy about. But um, a lot of those spikes already happened in the fall. You know, cards like Gideon of Ally of Zendikar regaining uh, lost ground and Heart of Kirin popping after Smuggler's Copter was banned. Um, but the thing is that people are either in on this format and playing regularly with their stock decks, which they don't have to change up very much because the metagame's not shifting fast enough. So there's not really much price movement on anything new. And we also still have, you know, things like the Masterpiece effect holding down the prices of a lot of cards in Standard because um, a lot of the EV is chewed up by uh, the presence of the Masterpieces in both Kaladesh and Nether Revolt, as well as in the uh, Zendikar block from last year. So... Um, you know, standard's been a little bit of a wasteland for finance lately, um, much more so than modern. Yeah, definitely. It just, you feel like it should be good and then like, you know, have those opportunities because the format's so settled, but it's just nothing can manage to break through. It's not like you're seeing anything in moto that, you know, is giving you hope that maybe there's some other decks here that just need some traction. It's just feels saturated. Well, I mean, if you're trying to measure how well Standard's doing, obviously the best data you can have is uh, access to the total number of uh, registered tournaments that uh, and participants in those tournaments. But uh, if you're not seeing any cards move um, up or down, um, or just a general uh, malaise uh, in Standard card prices, it's also a pretty good indicator that the format is is not generating a lot of fresh interest. Right. Yep, that's completely true as well. Um. So what what were you going to talk about for Modern here? So the first place deck over at the Star City Games Modern Open, which was uh, a significantly more interesting. Um, moderns, you know, the, people talk about, you know, a subclass of cards in Modern that are busted. You know, we should ban Simeon Spirit Guide, Blood Moons, Too Annoying, whatever. I mean, every month we're talking about different cards, it seems. But there, there's a relatively short list of cards that are still on the radar as as potentially needing to go. Um, I've heard a lot of complaints about Tron and et cetera, so forth lately. But, you know, every top eight still seems like it's, you know, relatively fresh, especially versus standard. Um, this week, uh, Death Shadow, again, was was leading the charge. Um, this deck's looking a little too good, that's for sure. Um, and this was a Jund variant running four Death Shadow, four Street Wraith, four Tarmogoyf, and a Gore Clan Rampager, of all things. Uh, a Liliana the Veil and the aforementioned two Liliana the Last Hope. Four Mishra's Bobble, the uh, uncommon whose price is just insane right now. Um, Abrupt Decay, Dismember, Three Fatal Push, Two Coligans Command. Uh, those are foils we should be selling now, by the way. I gotta get on that. Teamer Battle Rage, Four Inquisition of Kozilek, Four Thoughtseize, a card that's probably likely to pop. Uh, a little further in the near future. I think that can hit 20 this year uh, on no reprint. And then the four traverse that Ulvenwald is almost certainly behind um, why the foils popped on that card this week. Uh, and two Tarfires tar as well. Uh, the tribal instant that gets you a instant and a tribal card in the graveyard at the same time. Yeah, that is one that I picked up um, some of for myself because I'm hoping there's some some room to grow on tar, Tarfire still. Uh, yeah, nothing here I thought was too amazing. I did see Ad Nauseam down there in eighth place again, which is interesting. I've, I've spoken highly of both 
Lotus Bloom and the eponymous card ad nauseum. I think those are both uh, both in pretty good position to at least double up, if not more, because um, this has shown up now in like several Star City Modern opens and events in a row now, I think. Um, and both of those cards really only have one printing. Yeah, I certainly want to point out that the Merfolk deck we discussed last week and in relation to my pick, Master of Waves, finished fourth. Yet another top eight under Merfolk's belt, despite all the shade being thrown at this deck. This was a pretty stock build, running Ether Vials, Spreading Seas, Dismember, and Spell Pierce alongside a whole bunch of Merfolk uh, and two Kira Great Glass Spinner. Um, entirely possible that uh, further success with this deck could push prices on both Master of Waves and as well as Master of the Pearl Trident and uh, possibly Lord of Atlantis or Foil Harbinger of the Tides would all be cards I'd be watching. Yeah, I, uh, I'm i the one throwing shade. I don't I don't think Merfolk is a particularly great deck. I know Corbin would strongly disagree with me. I think it's fine. I think it's still at least one card away, one really interactive card away from being that great. But, I mean, that doesn't really matter. If people really start to... Uh, fall for the deck um several of these pieces are really primed for for moving the road i'm sure we'll be discussing some of these in the weeks to come and not just master of waves there's got there's others too well, i mean you're not the only one throwing shade ari lax pro player uh perennial poor pro player over on star city games took merfolk for perennial a spin poor player <laughs> <laughs> took uh merfolk for a spin uh over on scg this week and his, well, part of his commentary um and or analysis after the fact was um, just talking about how when you're mono blue, you don't have, you know, great sideboard options the way that Jund or Endor, uh, uh, Abzan lists do where they can, you know, get access to some of the best, uh, sideboard response cards, uh, in the format, which often ends up being important when you're dealing with decks with a really linear strategy that you need to shut them down on. For instance, something like Stony Silence is super useful against Affinity and, and, uh, Lantern Control and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's totally fair. Blue is not the best sideboard color in modern right now uh also worth pointing out that not long after uh caleb derber did extremely well in an open with a deck he had been practicing on stream with we now have todd stevens rocketing to the top of the invitational uh point the seg tour leaderboard now at, uh, in first place after finishing fifth with his green white uh value company build uh that he's been playing on stream and this is the one we talked about briefly last week he's running four courser of crew fix uh a card definitely to keep your eye on folks um azusa lost but seeking is the combo with crucible of worlds and ghost quarters where you can try to lock them out of the game completely you can also recycle horizon canopies that way or sometimes just your fetch lands he's also running renegade rallier so he can set up all sorts of craziness with that and uh four night of the reliquary and three voice of resurgence uh a mythic reprint in modern masters 2017 that comes out this weekend that is likely to get very very low before you want to put your hands on it Mm-hmm. yep i agree with that this was also a list with four collected companies. Uh, those foils still probably have a little room to grow um, back towards the point. They hit almost $50 at one point when they were uh, popular and standard. They've since since been fading a bit, but I suspect that they can regain some of that if deck after deck after deck keeps putting uh, the card in as a four of in modern. I thought this build was, the green-white company build was, was interesting uh, just because it played no court of calling. Now I'm so used to seeing that in these strategies. Yeah, so I mean, this is basically a completely different list. Uh, Todd wasn't running any of the combos um, that we're used to seeing out of some of the other uh, green-white or Abzan uh, builds. 
Um, instead, he was going for kind of straight, overwhelming value, trying to value his opponents out um, with this Crucible of Worlds kind of side uh, plan, running a Dromoka's Command and for Path to Exile to try to control the board long enough for him to set up shop and go to town. This is a a wild list. Uh, there's just so many... I'm trying to keep track of all the combos here, and it seems like there's got to be at least like three or four, right? Yeah, I mean, there's things you can do with Knight of the Reliquary. There's getting back Tarmogoyf with Renegade Rallyer after you pop a fetch or any number of other different things. Tireless Tracker with all the lands coming into play off Azusa, um, giving you clues and then making the tracker bigger. Um, Azusa, Crucible, and Ghost Quarter has got to be... It's crazy. My favorite. That's my favorite. Just The Court of, uh, Court of Calling should be in the deck just so you can get Azusa. And and because so many of the that. interactions, the value interactions, revolve around the lands coming in and out of play, the Courser of Crucifixes are just crazy, right? Because as a 2-4 that's gaining you life, not only is it giving you some percentage points against the aggro decks, um, but it's getting you to those lands so that you can set up shop with your, with your combos... And with uh, four toughness, it's in a relatively sweet spot against a lot of the um, aggressive creatures uh, in decks that are not running Death Shadow. Right, right. Man, that's that an interesting deck. Uh, yeah, and then we, we see this deck from Ross Merriam as well. I mean, this was in the Savant, but I'm just looking at this link you sent me for... Uh, yeah, this is, the one I met, this is the one I mentioned earlier, the Kiki Nahiri list. Yeah, uh, with four Sahili Rai, four Nahiri the Harbinger, um, with no Emmercool to go get. This is just uh, using Nahiri and Sahili as value engines with uh, Felidar Guardians, Noble Hierarch, Restoration Angel, Sun Titan, four Wall of Omens, and two Coiling Oracle of all things. Coiling Oracle is a card that I would be happy to see more of in Modern. That is the Modern that I want to enjoy. <laughs> I don't want anyone else to enjoy it, but I want to enjoy it. Uh, it was also w- worth pointing out that that list was running three rocks war monk in the sideboard. Uh, interesting uh, tech against some of the smaller aggro decks and, and burn plans. Um, and the green white company list runs a whisperwood elemental um, from Fate Reforged uh, mm-hmm. in the sideboard. Uh, and against the decks where it's good, it's uh, very good. I would love to see whisperwood elemental become very valuable in modern because i remember buying a bunch of those back in standard forever ago and then they like put two of them in some event deck like a couple weeks later <laughs> yeah i was yeah. not happy about that yeah all right so that's our metagame week in review this week uh our topic of the week this week is the um news that tcgplayer.com is moving into the inventory management software um sphere with a new offering called tcg pro trader that was unveiled at an industry conference this week Mm -hmm. so can you give us a little bit of an overview of what that is sure so i guess for the players i for a lot of you that are not uh working in uh, collectibles retail this won't be particularly uh, uh of relevance but might may still find it interesting um, there's basically an inventory management system called Crystal Commerce that has made really, you know, deep inroads into the collectibles industry over the last five years or so. 
And lately, when we've had weeks where we're having trouble getting accurate pricing at a TCG player, um, it has largely been because the Crystal Commerce software has been giving the vendors that are using it a lot of problems. Um, and so when we're talking about inventory management software, we're talking about the software that stores and vendors and eBay sellers will use to manage their inventory um, to make sure that their inventory is synced between multiple platforms. Because one of the big problems, of course, is that if you have something for sale on eBay and you have it for sale on TCG Player and you have it for sale over on Amazon, you don't want to be in a situation where you sell it in on all three platforms simultaneously. So you want to have some kind of software that's coordinating it, coordinating all of that so that when something sells one place, it gets pulled down somewhere else. You also want your inventory management software to be relatively easy to use so that you can train your staff effectively um, so that they can uh, efficiently run the shop. Um, and in an ideal world, you want your um, action that happens on the floor in your retail presence to, to also be synced with what's happening online. Um, and so there's been all these problems with Crystal Commerce, especially over the last year. Um, and TCG just saw a gap in the market that they could drive a truck through and has now announced this new program um, that is going to do a few different things. So it's going to provide uh, kind of like an automatic uh, store presence. So instead of coming to somebody like me uh, or my my agency, um, Advoca, to have somebody build a custom uh, e-commerce solution for you, um, you can go to TCG and they basically give you a bunch of raw templates that you can use to set up a, you know, eh, okay looking store um, that's not going to blow anybody's mind, but that gets the job done. Um, they're also leveraging card scanning software similar to what Quiet Speculation was offering um, starting last year. Um, so obviously that's going to be some competition for those guys. Um, this allows you to use a camera setup to basically physically or visually scan inventory into your system instead of having to type it in, which can be, once you get going with that, can be a much faster process. Um, it integrates fully with the whole TCG player platform. So, you know, that's a big advantage because you can, um, TCG can now basically manage your, uh, in-store retail inventory as well as your online inventory. And I guess one of the big advantages is they've announced that this is like zero dollar setup fee, zero percentage to post. So putting things in the system and starting to use the system are going to be, you know, near frictionless. Um, I just see that is such a big catch right there is having that zero barrier to entry, essentially making it free is so big for demonstrating value of the platform and getting people into it. Um, you know, no, no cost to people to give it a shot is so appealing to these stores that even stores that aren't really like magic shops or hobby shops are going to be much more able to give it a shot because it costs them nothing to give it to give it a try um and you know we've seen this work with like ebay and other websites which don't require you to pay anything before you try them basically so one of the things to keep in mind here is that not just anybody can sign up for this thing right now um apparently it's only available to gold star sellers um, oh really i missed that yeah, which is basically a feedback rating of at least 99.5% on at least 100 transactions within the last 90 days. So you've also got to keep that, you know, you're on a rolling 90-day window on that, and you got to keep your Gold Star seller status. Now, down the road, once they've, you know, brought in the first cohort, they could easily decide to open this up to um, uh, sellers that are a little further down the pipe. But the, Yeah, I really have to imagine that we see that door open a little bit for people. Yeah, I mean, this is a new system, so there's going to be bugs, there's going to be problems, it's not going to do everything perfectly. There are, in fact, other uh, 
alternatives out there that were competing with Crystal Commerce. Imp POS comes to mind as a good operation that people that stores have been signing up for. Um, but a lot of them are are uh, have some setup fees, right? Um, and you know, one of the things that TCG is relying on here is that they don't need those setup fees because the investment they've made in this software is going to um, you know broaden their total ecosystem and influence and make a bigger and bigger slice of the hobby reliant on them for. Uh, you know, continued access to their technology, which can only serve to increase commitment to their selling platform as the, you know, uh, the central platform for the hobby. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you see as, what type of impact do you think this has on the average buyer, like the average person like you or I or the average player? Uh, I think one of the things that you're going to see is that as more and more stores move to a fully integrated platform like this, you're going to see fewer and fewer opportunities to um, get cards that are mispriced online. Um, And card prices are likely to uh, get tighter and tighter between the various outlets. At at present, the eBay price might be a few dollars off the TCG price, which is probably off the Amazon price because the fees are much higher over on Amazon. Um, and all of that is going to be above what you're going to pay in social media. But as you know, this centralization process takes place where all of the data is essentially sourced from the same platform, um, you know, the TCG market price, um, last price paid on, on a card is going to become, you know, more and more central over time. And you're going to see less and less variation in prices over, um, you know, a variety of vendors online. One of the other things we can see is if these guys expand into Europe and keep in mind that over in Europe, it's basically about magic card market. Uh, there's all sorts of unique um, tax and legal implications to operating in the EU. Um, so it's not even clear that TCG uh, wants to jump into that market, given all of that, at least not in the near future. But I could see five years down the road hearing that TCG launches uh, a, a competitive platform versus uh, MKM over in Europe, um, because I think they're going to get big enough that they're going to have the cash flows to attempt it. <clears throat> sure. At a certain point, you are going to provide, it is going to be worth it for TCG to player to wade into the tax law of the eu um to try and uh to expand their and offer their product uh especially god forbid if we see the eu break up and they all switch to sort of independent markets that probably makes things a little cleaner for tcg players perspective because then it's just a series of countries instead of whatever patchwork the eu is right now uh but you know even if that doesn't come together the whole the point of the eu is that it's supposed to streamline um cross-border vending so maybe uh I mean, maybe they do end up there and it kind of revitalizes the EU market too. I wonder if something like that changes the EDH market um, in Europe. I mean, I'm, I mean, it would make it probably a little smooth, some of those transactions a little smoother uh, if you're not paying that outrageous shipping every time. I'm not sure. Um, you know, I, I can point to why Japan's casual slash EDH market is so weak as part of the the culture and the accessibility and that type of thing over there. But I don't know what the issue is uh, here in Europe, why EDH is so much less popular. Right. And if I'm not mistaken, TCG either already has or had announced a forthcoming uh, upgrade where uh, overseas sellers were going to be able to sell through the platform, I think by using uh, TCG player direct, right? Like you could send in all your inventory and then since they're, they're sending it on for you, you could have an account from overseas. Um, but I haven't, uh, I remember 
I, I stopped short of getting that set up and I can't remember why. So I'll have to follow up on that and then we can update people next week. Hmm. Okay. Uh, this looks pretty cool. Uh, the, I, you know, I've wanted to try one of those cam scanners. Um, I never picked up the, the QS one. I don't know if I do quite enough to make it worth it. They need to make the next iteration of those machines also needs to sort your cards for you as it scans them. Then we're really in business. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's nice about once you have it all, uh, you know, scanned in is that you can really quickly reference, uh, uh, you know, condition check or whatever and provide imaging to a potential buyer, especially useful if you're selling a high-end item like an expensive modern foil or EDH foil or some kind of vintage piece. Um, and it's just, it, it, you really do need to have the, you know, uh, a lot of workflow that you're trying to get more efficient with before all of that is uh, especially necessary. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how this plays out and uh, you know how far down the vendor chain uh, towards the backpack grinders we get in terms of people making use of this. Yeah, I wonder if we're going to see uh, see you know I haven't been really been on the floor of a GP much in a while. If you're going to see people sitting around with cam scanners hooked up to their cell phone or tablet or something and just buzzing through their trades like that because that would make some of the backpack grinding a lot more comfortable where you kind of have um the ability to keep track on your tcg player inventory right there on the floor uh what's going on which actually leads me to wonder about like um actual vendors right like who are running a booth being able to process rapidly process a lot of the the product that they're moving um that they're buying even if not major volumes of that you know if somebody walks over with like 2000 cards you're not gonna be able to scan that all on the floor but the guy selling a handful of cards um and when you're selling a small handful of cards it'd be nice to be able to do that right there um at your booth pretty quickly especially if you get five or six of those running at a time depending on how quick they go i guess we'd have to talk to a vendor and see what they had to say about it uh but it seems like an interesting outcome um depending on uh, on how the technology works and how reliable it is yeah uh so apparently what they have on offer at tcg right now is uh the ability to sell orders via tcg player direct internationally so you can sell to australia Canada and the United Kingdom with Japan coming soon. Um, yeah, that, that looks like that, how that works. So they're already in Europe from the perspective of being in the UK. Um, the UK, of course, is a little different than continental Europe. Um, so consider this, you know, a warning shot over the bow of MKM. Oh, that's interesting. I wonder, uh, wonder where that'll go. Well, I mean, it's not the same as supporting vendors from Europe. I don't think it's the. It's basically saying you can uh, you can sell through TCG out to buyers in those zones because they can have accounts on TCG, and and TCG will back shipments to those locations, um, as opposed to something like eBay, which you know you have full reign to ship wherever you want in the world um, based on where whatever risk tolerance you have. Right which is low <laughs> i mean uh, we've talked about this before off uh, off mic that uh i tend to send it, things out plain white envelope and i'm assuming you track pra- practically anything over 50 bucks yeah i've had so many bad ebay experiences i won't put a stamp i would rather ship a stamp with tracking information fair than tape it to an envelope yeah i mean it's a lot <laughs> cheaper in the u.s to get tracking than almost anywhere else that's certainly one of the major benefits of being your on your side of the border Oh yeah, I could see that. 
it's about it, if I want to track something from Canada to the U.S., it's about twenty bucks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, going from U.S. to Canada isn't really that much different, um, but going within the U.S., it's like two fifty. Right. What do you guys pay up in Canada for for tracking stuff like that? It would still be ten or twelve, which is significantly more than the three or four you can get via like. Wait, you you pay ten or twelve dollars locally, like to ship with tracking within Canada. Yeah, they they don't like they consider tracking to be almost like a business option, and and it's just ridiculously expensive. Oh, that's brutal. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, geez. so I, you know we don't get insurance or anything on it with that tracking, not by default. But yeah, just the tracking info itself is. Yeah, tra- the tracking game's real weak up here. All right, so that's our show for this week. Uh, where can people find you online, Travis? Uh, well, I am on Twitter at wizardbumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. Uh, I write every Monday for MTG Price, but not this coming Monday because I will be gone, as I will also not be on um, next week's episode. You guys get Cliff back next week, so enjoy that. Um, and uh, let's see, Twitter here, usually Cartel Aristocrats and Scry.land. Um, how about you? You guys can find me on Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as via my weekly articles, MTGPrice.com. Tomorrow I'll be publishing a uh, second in my three-part series on making money in modern in 2017. Um, I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the MTGPrice.com Pro Trader service. For just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year, you can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of, what did we say? This is 59, right? Yep. 59. 59. There was a lot of off-cast discussion trying to figure out what number of caps we were <laughs> actually on. Uh, but okay. 59. We're locked in. Um, great. So I will uh, probably not next week, but I will see you for episode 61, James. Uh, thanks, Travis. Have fun in Hawaii. And we'll see you guys next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Mm-hmm.